Hey church, so we're, we're on week seven of a, a sermon series through the book of First Peter, and we have finally arrived at a place of some practical instruction uh, for the Christian life. And, and the reason I say finally arrived is because uh, the motivation behind doing this series uh, was to be able to address some issues um, that, that just so many people are facing. And just there was the desire to deal with a lot of those issues. Um, but there was also conviction to do that uh, based on a book in the Bible. And one of the reasons for that uh, is because just how these books of the Bible are designed as God wrote them uh, is before we get to this place of practical instruction, there's always just quite a conversation first about who Jesus is and what he has done for us, and how that affects our identity as people. And it's just super important that we get that, that we understand who we are before we are told what to do. And I think Mitchell just did a phenomenal job wrapping up that idea of our identity in Jesus as we now get to a practical uh, application of the Christian life. And the practical subject that we're dealing with t- tonight is something that I'm quite sure is on everybody's minds. It's a, it's a topic um, that we all have concerns about, uh, that we're all asking a lot of questions about, and that we are talking about a lot. The subject is life as a citizen of South Africa. In some ways, I think it's a tough time to be a South African again. I mean, we've had some pretty good moments in our past, some periods of great um, optimism and positivity. If I think back just kind of 10 years, so 2010 was just kind of a wave of patriotism and optimism. But a few years after that, kind of with, you know, kind of corruption scandals, uh, various um, social uprisings, there was kind of when really rolling blackouts started to ripple through the country, that kind of that positivity all kind of dissolves. And, and maybe over the last year or so, there's been moments of increased optimism again. There's been a bit of a, sh- bit of a shake up in the government, but currently land reform, NHI, and what seems to be an increase in violent crime has led to what I really am feeling as one of the most negative moods that we've had in our country for a long time. It's led a lot of people to be really questioning, should we still be living here? Should I stay or should I go? Well, what does the Bible have to say about Christian citizenship, particularly when those Christians are living in a country where things are not going so well? Well, it turns out the Bible has a lot to say about that. And First Peter is going to address that. And that is where we find ourselves tonight. So open your Bibles to First Peter chapter 2. And I want to roll back a little bit just in our reading tonight to the passage that Mitchell preached on last week, because again, it's going to be critical. You'll see, especially tonight, that we first understand who we are before we get to this discussion of what it means to be a Christian citizen uh, in a country where things are not going so well. So let's read from uh, verse 9 of First Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people 
for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that is the unbelievers, honorable, so that when they speak against you as the evildoers they are, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of these foolish people. So live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So the language surrounding who we are when we become Christians in the preceding passage is so important to this discussion of how we should live as citizens of an earthly country because who we are is a new chosen race. Who we are as a group of Christians is our own holy nation. We are exiles actually meaning we are temporary residents of this earth, in fact, belonging to heaven. And so what it means is that our primary citizenship is in heaven. We are citizens of heaven temporarily for the time being exiles on earth. And that means that our primary loyalty, that our primary allegiance, that our primary submission is to God himself. We report to him, we submit to him, our allegiance is to him alone and only. We live as Christians in his kingdom, which happens for now to be on earth. We do things his way, we follow his orders. That's what we are being told about who we are. So, does that mean then that I as a Christian am therefore free to live in whatever nation I find myself in and not have to submit directly to the human government and to the country that I find myself in? Is that what that means? It's kind of a question. 
And I phrase it quite carefully and because I, the, the answer might surprise you and I really want you to feel the weight of the answer. Does it mean that if our primary citizenship is in heaven, that our allegiance, our loyalty, our submission is to King Jesus only, that that means that while we are on earth, we are free to live as citizens of the kingdom of Jesus and therefore not have to directly submit to earthly governments and institutions? The answer is actually yes. Now, now that may surprise you, that may sound controversial and, and obviously there's more to it, but you really have to feel the weight of this. We as Christians have a profound found loyalty to the kingdom of God and to King Jesus himself. We are not torn in two directions. Our allegiance is not split between two different places. We only have one allegiance, and that is to God. We live His way. We do what He says because God is our only King. And you need to feel the weight of that. But Jesus, our King, says to us, I want you to submit to human government and every human institution. And you need, you need to let that sink in because it, it's perhaps just a small change, but it's so profound. Your loyalty as a Christian is to Jesus. But he says, this is exactly how First Peter is playing this out. You're a holy nation, a chosen people for God's own possession. You belong to him, you submit to him, but he now says that I want you to submit to all and every human institution, which is quite difficult. And that's what verse 13 is saying. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. I think we need to chew on that carefully. Let's really digest this one verse. Be subject means submit yourself. It's actually kind of a military phrase. It's kind of fall in line. Submit yourself to every human institution. He even goes on to elaborate. That means the emperor, read president, and every kind of local government official is what he's saying. And even when he says every human institution, institution refers to Every form of government that humans have set up to organize society. Every form. That means not just political systems. That means financial systems as well, i.e. tax laws. That means justice systems as well. And what this is saying, let's just hear this again, you submit and you do those things not for their sake. You're not going to submit for the president. You're not going to be subject because you're patriotic. You're not even going to submit as a citizen because it is your civil human responsibility. You will subject yourself for the Lord's sake. 
because you belong to him and he is your king and he is the one giving us this instruction. And so we do it for the Lord's sake. We submit to every human institution. And we need to really dwell here and we need to get this because this is setting up most of the rest of Peter's letter. So if you kind of jump ahead to next week, next week the passage, he's talking about um, the workplace and he's talking about employees and bosses and that kind of relationship. If you kind of just jump ahead there, verse 18 says servants, it's not meaning slaves, he's talking about workers, be subject to your masters. And if you skip even ahead to the week after that, which is going to be chapter 3, which is the subject of marriage and wives and husbands, it says in chapter 3, verse 1, likewise, wives, be subject to your husbands. So there are systems set up to try and organize human interactions with each other across this earth. And God says to his people, I want you to submit yourself to every one of those. And he says it so clearly and so definitively. Why would God say that? Why would he give us this instruction? The simple answer is because that's how things will work better. See, here's the thing. You can hate politics and you can hate government and you can hate taxes, and you can hate the workplace and board meetings and those kinds of structures. You can hate the institution of marriage, but those are things that God himself has instituted as a means of organizing human society in a way that it can flourish because anarchy and chaos never helped anyone anywhere ever. Now, I'm sure you must have some objections to this. I do. And Peter anticipates there being objections and deals with them. So here are perhaps some of the objections. They may not be in your mind, but they're they're bubbling inside of you. You're like, whoa, how can this be? So let me try and verbalize some of them perhaps for you. One of your objections might be, But hang on, we spent weeks, and and Mitchell, especially last week, did a great job of describing to me that as a believer in Jesus, that what, what that means is my identity is as a restored son or daughter of God, which means I am equal in value and dignity to every other human being. And, and so therefore, how could it be that someone else that I have to be underneath somebody else doing what they say. So oftentimes people, you know, will talk about what's the, what's the most difficult doctrine in the Bible? And I guess that depends. So what's the most difficult doctrine in the Bible to understand? Well, I'd say maybe the Trinity. Uh, what's the most difficult doctrine in the Bible to believe? That might be kind of the doctrine of uh, an eternal punishment. What's the most difficult doctrine in the Bible to obey? It's this doctrine of submission. The problem is not hard to see. Most of us don't like the idea of giving up the right to make decisions for ourselves. Most of us don't like the idea of someone telling us what to do. Most of us don't care much 
for restrictive rules and regulations because ultimately we don't want to believe that we are not in ultimate control and we don't want to believe that anyone is better than us or over us and can tell us what to do. Not the government, not my boss, and not my husband. See, here's the thing. The Bible never equates the idea of someone being in a position of leadership or authority over someone else. The Bible never equates that person as having value over and above the person that is underneath them. Never. This is never the language of the Bible at all. Because yes, it is true. We are all sinners. We are all saved by grace. We all receive the same identity as children of God, the same inheritance, and our value is dictated by the value of the death of Jesus, which applies equally to each one of us. We're the ones that think this. We're the ones that think that somehow in an authority structure, that means the person in, in authority is somehow better. We're the only ones that think that the Bible's like, hey, that's not me. That, that's no way in the Bible. And, and even Jesus would say, hey, what are you guys talking about? Because Jesus would say, I, as God the Son, am subject to God the Father, but I'm still God. Right, uh, John 5, verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing and what the Father instructs. 1 Corinthians 11 says God the Father is head over God the Son, over Christ. And Jesus is like, hey... In, in this mysterious Trinitarian relationship, God the Father is over God the Son, but God the Son is still God like God the Father. He's like, hey, what are you guys talking about? There's absolutely no difference at all. We're the ones that have this problem. It's nowhere in the Bible and nowhere in the language of Jesus that there's any idea of a different kind of dignity or a different kind of value or a different kind of worth. It's purely functional. So that's the one objection we might have. But the other objection that we might have that I think is a little more serious is you might say, well, that's okay for you, Jesus, to be subject and under the authority of God the Father because God the Father is perfect and amazing and his love. I have to be subject to human institutions that are corrupt, unjust, evil, and wicked, and where that authority has been abused. Surely you do not expect me to be subject in those situations. This must be an objection. And let me remind you, and Mitchell remind you again, reminded you as well last week, of who First Peter was originally written to. It was to Christians living in Rome, of whom the emperor, honor the emperor, of whom the emperor was Nero. And let me tell you, as bad as any president in any country of the world could be, they will never match up to how bad Nero was, particularly for Christians. Mitchell described that to you last week. And Peter is writing to them, be subject 
to that emperor, to that human institution. And let me tell you, this message is repeated all over the Bible. This is not just one instance, and I'll share with, share with you some of those as we go along tonight. And in every single instance where this principle occurs, the people that are being addressed are living under corrupt governments far worse than ours and most of the governments in the world. And you will see that this principle of being subject to and being in submission to all human institutions, no matter how corrupt or unjust they might be, is going to roll over into the next two weeks' conversations. So, so have a look again. Just, just skip ahead. Um, verse 18, again, addressing servants being subject to masters. So employees to bosses. says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also the unjust ones. And in chapter 3, when we get to wives and husbands, says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, like they're not believers, they're disobedient, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct, which is a beautiful passage. But basically, there's no outs here. As bad and as corrupt as it is, the principle is submit. And you might say, hang on, how can that be? How could God ask us to do something as difficult as this? And I want to tell you that, that there's, there's a couple reasons why he would ask us to do such a difficult thing. First of them, and, and this is the simplest and most obvious one, is, well, the reality is that no one is perfect. You could say there's better governments and better presidents and worse governments, but there's no such thing as a perfect one. And even if there were a Christian government... It's not guaranteed that it would be good. In fact, some people would say that it would be worse. The reality is God expedites his authority. God exercises his sovereign will through fallible, broken human beings. He still achieves his sovereignty. He still achieves his good and perfect works. And it's through fallible human beings. And aren't we glad about that? Because we are all fallible human beings and God is still using those. What that means is we do not have the right to say that because this authority is defective, because it's less than perfect, then I don't have to obey it. We don't get to say that. I read an article this last week. I was having a conversation with someone again, you know, about, oh, something we hate, e-tolls, and they send me this article. Uh, people are not paying e-tolls because it is corruptly administrated. We do not have the right to say that if that government is defective or less than perfect, that that means I do not have, I do not have to obey it because there's no system at all that will be perfect. That's the first, that's kind of obvious. But the second one is a little more important. Why God would ask us to do such a difficult thing. And that is because God is shaping our hearts through this. 
There is in the heart of every human being a rebel that naturally rebels against authority. That is the story of mankind, rebellion. You could say that it's the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible opens with human beings who are supposed to be subject to God and they rebel against that authority. That's in the first few pages of the Bible. That's where everything goes pear-shaped. And the end of the story of the Bible is the, the reality that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that, yes, in fact, Jesus Christ is Lord. That authority will be acknowledged one way or the other at the end. And so what God is using as a means of shaping these rebel hearts is this abrasion and attrition of us being instructed to submit to imperfect human institutions. What he's trying to do is shape these rebel hearts so that we can willingly and joyfully and fully submit to God once again. And when that happens, everything becomes perfect in our lives. That's how he created it. We're just not good at that. And God has employed this means of wildly imperfect human institutions and asked us to submit to them because he is in that process shaping these hearts who will ultimately submit joyfully and fully to him as king. Another reason why God might ask us to do this is because in this process, we will end up reflecting the gospel. And I'm going to jump ahead again to next week. I want you to have a look. So verse 18, I want to read all of next week's passage. Might not even have anything to preach on next week anymore. So just, just listen. If you've got Bibles, just, just read this. Because Peter's making a sustained argument about how God will use this difficult thing to reflect the gospel. You've got to hear this. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only the good and gentle, but also the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed for you are straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Those last two verses, verse 24 and 25, you could 
you could chop them out and you could preach those at an evangelistic crusade because it's the whole gospel message that Peter is weaving this into a conversation about submitting to unjust rulers above you, saying when you do that, you're going to reflect Christ and you've been called to do this. You see, here's the thing. If we will only give honour to those who deserve honour, how are we reflecting the gospel when we received honour when we did not deserve it? But when we are able to give honour when, when it is undeserved, then we are reflecting the gospel. And so what Peter is saying in that argument, he's saying, he says, so, so really what is it when you work well and you work hard for a good boss? Well, that's good, but everyone does that. But when you work well and you work hard for an unjust boss, that's Christ-like. And when you do that, you will be closer to Jesus than you will ever be. And you will reflect the gospel of Jesus to those around you in a way that might win them. And therefore, everything gets better for everybody. And in the very same way, he's saying the same thing about being a citizen. If you are a good citizen, when you're in a good country with a good president, well, that is good, but everyone does that. But if you are a good citizen in a wicked, corrupt, and unjust country, that's Christ-like. And you will never be closer to Jesus than when you are doing that. And in doing that, the gospel of Jesus will be reflected to those around you. And there's a possibility that they might see that and be transformed and everybody wins. The fourth reason why he might call us to do this difficult thing is because when we do this, it glorifies God. This is really, remember, distinct is First Peter. This is perhaps one of the most distinctive things Christians could do. And in, and in living up to that distinctive, as hard as it is, remember, Mitchell reminded you last week, like as Christians, if we're never made uncomfortable, if we're never suffering in some way for our faith, then are we really living distinctly? It's exactly what Peter's saying. When we do this, this is hard, but all of Christianity is hard. But when we endure with faithfulness what God has called us, to do, God is glorified. And I want to say that this has to be a conversation that you have when you are talking about the country and the turmoil and if you're considering whether you should leave this country. And let me just say that's a very complex and nuanced conversation. And really the bottom line of that is it's not a, it's not a moral decision. It's not an ethical decision. It's not sinful or disobedient. Because remember, we are free. We're citizens of heaven. You can live anywhere you like on earth. But what I find missing from every conversation and people asking these questions is this all-important question of what will glorify God, which is got to be a question we ask all the time about everything. It's not happening in this conversation. The reality is there is such great opportunity to glorify God as citizens right here and right now in this difficult situation. 
maybe now that we know why, might, why God might ask us to do this difficult thing, it would be good to discuss how to do that. What does it really mean to be subject to human institutions and government in particular? And Peter tells us two things that he makes explicit. This is what being subject means. Uh, firstly, it says be subject, uh, it means honor. So it says in verse 17, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And by the way, that structure is important. Fear God, that's our ultimate allegiance and loyalty. Love the brotherhood, so love Christians and that community. Honor everyone. Everyone. Even honor the emperor. And what does it mean to honor? Here's why that's important, because it's possible to submit but begrudgingly. It's possible to obey, but with a rotten attitude. That's not honoring. To submit with honor means to submit joyfully and willingly. Which means not slandering at every opportunity. South Africans, we're just so bad at this. Criticizing and slandering and complaining and belittling. Everything is happening around us, and we have to stop that. It does not mean that we are naive. It does not mean that we pretend that things are okay. It does not mean that we disengage from what ha- what is happening around us. What it means is, is this. There is a way of talking openly and honestly about sort of the, some of the struggles that we are having in a way that does not belittle the subject we're discussing. For example, there is a way of talking openly and honestly about the struggle you're having in your marriage with someone confidentially. And it's possible to talk about that struggle with them in a way that does not belittle your spouse. And it's possible to talk about some of the struggles that you're having at work and with your boss, with, with someone in an effective way, but it's possible to talk about that in a way that does not belittle your boss or your company. And you can just expand it to everything. It's possible to talk about churches and, and, and everything in a way that is open and honest but does not belittle. And it's possible to talk openly and honestly about the struggles we have in our country in a way that is done that still honors the human institution that we find ourselves in. That way is called the Christian way. So be subject with honor, the first thing. The second thing is to do good. Verse 15. Couldn't really get clearer than this. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people around you. And doing good there doesn't just refer to this joyful, willing submission. It literally means going over and above and beyond and doing good things that will contribute to the good of the country you find yourself in. I think Christians should be the best citizens of any country. That if the government needed help with something, that they would come knocking on the doors of the churches. You'll see this all over the Bible. Here's an example. I promise you this. Here's an example. Titus 3 verse 1 to 2 says, Remind them, he's talking to a different group of people, a different time, a different place. And he says, Remind them, 
because they have already been told, they know this, but remind them to be subject to the rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. And to malign no one, to not be contentious, but to be gentle, showing every consideration for all men. It's almost the exact same message in different languages to a different group of people in a different time, but still under a corrupt system of government. Doing good is not a Facebook rant. That never achieved anything positive ever. Doing good means actually doing good works that could alter the trajectory of the country that you find yourself in. I want to give you an example of this from history, an example that changed the country and changed the world of a Christian with conviction doing something. And I've chosen this example because it's interesting because it, it illustrates this principle of ultimate allegiance to Jesus. Because this particular example, it's William Wilberforce. So he's the guy that campaigned against slavery in England. It took him 30 years, 30 years to get the Slavery Act abandoned. See, and here's the thing. Here's why this example is interesting. Because William Wilberforce was involved in protest action. Right, so, so there is one out in the submit thing, and the out is if that human institution is asking you to do something that the kingdom of Jesus would not do. You obey Jesus first. Your ultimate allegiance is to him. And so he believed that this was not the way the kingdom of Jesus should be, that there would be slaves. And so he protested, but get this, he did it peacefully and legally, and it took him 30 years but it changed that nation and it was an example that rippled across the world. See, so sometimes doing good means as Christians doing something based on Christian convictions, but it almost never means rebellion. So this is going to take a lot of faith, isn't it? This is so hard. It's going to take a lot of faith that God is actually doing something, that this is the right and good way to approach. It's going to take a lot of faith. I want to share, you just, share with you one last story from the Bible, from the Old Testament, another group of people in a vastly different time and different place who were under a government so corrupt and unjust and wicked and evil. And it's found in the book of Habakkuk. I chose that because I don't often talk about that book. So King Jehoiakim in Habakkuk, I mean, Habakkuk the prophet witnessed scandal, corruption, violence that would have made the Godfather blush. And Habakkuk is just, it's so amazing because it, 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 it describes for us the nature of how difficult this is. And it's actually a quite an amazing picture of how one wrestles with God in situations like this. So if you, if you have a look at, at Habakkuk, he, he opens like this. In verse 2, chapter 1, he says, O Lord, how long must I cry to you for help and you will not hear? We don't often pray like that, do we? 
when we do our nice corporate praise in the beginning of church. We don't go, hey, God, we've been asking you for so long. Why aren't you listening? We we don't do that. He goes on to say, or cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity while you idly look at the wrong? This is hectic. Why do I have to see this all around me? And it seems like you're turning a blind eye. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The law is paralyzed. Do you feel that? The law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous, the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. That's Habakkuk's complaint to God. And God answers him in verse 5. And God says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. God is literally saying, hey, Habakkuk, I hear you. But I am doing a work, and I'm telling you, it's so mysterious. You wouldn't believe if I told you. So this takes faith, right? Which is why in Habakkuk 2, verse 4, perhaps the one verse that many of us know from Habakkuk says, the righteous shall live By faith. That verse is written to people living in such a violent and corrupt and unjust society. And so would you agree that that's probably something we need? It's a healthy dose of faith to be able to do this willingly and joyfully. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess to you that this all sounds so mysterious and it's so difficult to believe that this would be the right and appropriate way for us to approach these human institutions. But we declare, and and church, I want to say, when I say we, I'm assuming it's going to be most of us. If that's you, then just confirm this in your heart. Lord, we declare that you are our king, that our Allegiance is wholly yours. That we submit, subject ourselves fully to you. Because we trust you. We trust that you are still exercising your sovereign and good and loving will over our lives, even when it doesn't look like it that you are doing something mysterious but deep and beautiful. And we want, we say to you with great courage, we want our hearts to be shaped, that we would be able to willingly, joyfully, fully submit ourselves to you, knowing what that would do in our lives, in the lives of people around us. And we say that courageously because we know now 
what that's going to involve. And Father, we confess to you, we, we confess these rebellious hearts. We just rebel all the time, all the way, and we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Let me confess our particular rebellion in this instance, in this particular human institution that we've rebelled against. We pray for your forgiveness, and we receive your forgiveness with faith and with joy. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would empower us to live like this, to honor everyone, and to do good in a way that is effective for our own hearts and for the lives of people around us. Hear our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.